Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. If you're sitting in the Kremlin, you think, well, this is a good opportunity to test the resolve of the Western alliance. The European Union has never been a successful foreign policy player. And what we're seeing today is part of the evidence of that. Let's hope that we can contain this turmoil, because if we don't, it is going to impact us in our pocketbooks and our wallets. Moscow itself, as you will remember, was a bit like the Wild West, but fun, nonetheless. <laughs> we um, were young men. <laughs> we were young men. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with me, Liam Halligan, and ordinarily, Alison Pearson. But today, co-pilot Pearson's unfortunately off sick. I'm delighted, though, to welcome as my temporary space companion... The Telegraph's distinguished defence editor and chief foreign affairs commentator, Con Cochlan. Great to be with you, Liam. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here too, Con. Now, we all wish Alison the very best for a speedy recovery, of course. Planet Normal wouldn't be Planet Normal without her. But it is good timing that Con Cochlan's boarding the rocket, given the extent to which this Russia-Ukraine conflict is dominating the headlines. Con, you're well steeped in the politics and diplomacy of East-West relations. You've written some important Telegraph columns over recent weeks as this Russia-Ukraine standoff has developed, including why Vladimir Putin's taking his big gamble earlier this week and last week, another column by appeasing Russia, the West is conspiring in its own destruction. And we'll put the links to both those Telegraph articles in the show notes to this episode. Now, it appears, Con, appears being the operative word, as we record today, Wednesday, that tensions are dialing down a touch between Russia and Ukraine. Sir John Soares, the former head of MI6, he says that while the US can claim it has faced down Russia, you can argue, says Soares, that Vladimir Putin is ahead on points. Now, you and I, Con, we've talked a fair bit over the years about the post-communist world, and I'm fascinated to hear your thoughts on the latest state of play. The state of play is very confusing, to be honest, Liam. (laughs) And thank you very much for your kind introduction. Coming back to John Soros, who I know very well from his time as head of MI6, I thought his comments were very measured. Clearly, this is a game for Putin. Putin's been building up to the Ukraine issue for some months, and he has an agenda. His agenda is, number one, to block Ukraine from ever joining NATO, and number two, to get NATO to redeploy some of its weaponry, some of its defences, from Eastern and Central Europe. Now, this is a long-standing Russian grievance that dates back to the end of the Iron Curtain and the collapse of the Soviet Union. The Russians believe that the West has moved into areas that should come under Moscow's sphere of influence, My own belief, and I've written this in the Telegraph, is that Putin sees the West as being rather weak at the moment, particularly with President Biden in Washington 
a new German chancellor who's clearly very inexperienced in world affairs, President Macron in France looking for re-election shortly, Britain still dealing with post-Brexit issues and its future security relationship with NATO and the EU. So these are all factors that if you're sitting in the Kremlin, you think, well, this is a good opportunity to test the resilience, the resolve of the Western alliance, and to see if he can get any movement on these issues that mean a lot to him. I mean, he wrote this big essay last summer on how Russia and Ukraine are one country. And really, since then, that was the trigger for this confrontation with Ukraine that is manufactured. But what I would say, and sort of slightly taking issue with what Sir John Saw said... Steady. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't think Putin is in the position he wants to be. I've been refreshingly surprised that NATO has not made any concessions. The way Macron conducted himself in Moscow last week and also Olaf Scholz's visit earlier this week you see that they want to do a deal with Putin, but the alliance has held firm. And the bottom line is Putin hasn't got very much. NATO defences remain in place in Eastern and Central Europe. In fact, if anything, they've been bolstered. You know, we've sent an extra thousand troops, some typhoon jets, other NATO countries are reinforcing NATO defences. There's no div on the issue of whether or not Russia has a veto on Ukraine joining NATO. So if you look at it from Putin's point of view, it's not going anywhere. That said, and this is where it gets rather complicated, there are still in excess of 130,000 Russian troops camped around Ukraine's borders. And the security briefings that I am getting from the UK and elsewhere is very much, this is a great concern, and frustrated that Putin may be with the way the diplomatic track is playing out, we must not discount the possibility that he just marches on Kiev, implements regime change, puts in a pro-Moscow puppet in power in Kiev, which was the case until the Maidan revolution in 2014, and basically has another satellite state just as he's done in Belarus. I have watched very closely your excellent columns in The Telegraph, not least because you are very plugged in, noted for it across Fleet Street, with British Western military and, and security intelligentsia, if you like. You wrote last week, Con, that Russia's primary objective in amassing this military force on the Ukrainian border has been, you still contend, to test Western resolve not to seize control of Ukraine, a move that would be ruinously counterproductive to Moscow's interests. I agree with you on that. I agree with you also about Mr. Macron's motives, the French, the Germans, they want to be part, don't they, of this Normandy format, the kind of group of four with Ukraine and Russia to try and push through the so-called Minsk Accord signed in the Belarus capital in 2014-15 after that Maidan revolution. I think you feel that Minsk would be a huge concession because a lot of people in Ukraine don't want Minsk because in the end, it allows Russia to have permanent influence in eastern Ukraine in those regions of Donetsk and Luhansk. That, I think, is quite an interesting subtlety. So would you say then that the French and the Germans haven't got what they want or do you think Minsk still may go forward? Well, I think the Ukrainians are coming under a lot of pressure to implement the Minsk Accords. There are two of them, one from 2014 and 2015, so Minsk 1 and 2. The problem is what the Russians want is for 
pro-Russian separatists to be accommodated into the heart of the Ukrainian constitution. And if that were to happen, it gives Moscow a direct voice over the political destiny of Ukraine. And Moscow can make sure that nothing ever happens, which is why the current Ukraine government is very opposed to it. Also, if you look closely at the Minsk agreements, they were drafted very cleverly by the Russian foreign ministry. And it's almost like the Russians don't exist. You know, this is a Ukraine issue, and Russia's hardly mentioned. But I did think that Macron in particular was prepared to sell Ukraine down the river in order to defuse this crisis. And I think you see the same sentiments being expressed by Germany's new chancellor, Olaf Scholz, after his meeting with Putin, where he said nobody wants to go to war with Ukraine. That's right. But there are important principles here at stake. And the whole sort of post-Second World War international edifice was built on the principles of self-determination and sovereignty. And what Putin is trying to do is erode these principles. And if he's successful, then other countries, other emerging superpowers or other superpowers, because they've already emerged, like China, will also sort of seek to break the international mold and further their claims to countries like Taiwan. So this is why it's so important, Liam. Now, I am, as you know, an old Russia hand, a former Moscow correspondent, but I'm above and beyond everything else a business and an economics journalist, and there are very big business issues here at stake. I mean, let's be clear, there's no way to put too fine a point on this. The Germans in particular have huge business interests in Russia if you live and work in Russia. I mean, the predominance of Volkswagen factories, Siemens factories, Mittelstadt, you know, small and medium-sized German companies doing huge business with Russia. Of course, there's the Nord Stream pipeline between Russia and Germany. We're looking now at Nord Stream 2. There's one already exists across the floor of the Baltic Sea. And the French as well. There's a lot of car production in Russia. The Auchan supermarket is ubiquitous. So in the end, it strikes me, if there is going to be peace, business will be part of that peace. The UK also has pretty big business interests in Russia. Let's not forget that BP owns a fifth of Russia's largest oil company, which itself is owned by the state. But as you say, unless we can sort out these security issues, unless we can come to some kind of settled agreement with a bit of ambiguity in it, Minsk is very ambiguous, a bit like the Good Friday Agreement was creatively ambiguous. But if we can get to a settled situation... There could be really big business between West and East, couldn't there, which would help to reinforce and secure that settled agreement if we can get the diplomacy right. But, Liam, I think this has been the position for 20 years. Mm. I remember going to Moscow just when Putin first took office. The late 90s, 99. Yeah, Mm. yeah. and there was this great feeling of optimism. Mm. There was talk of... Russia joining NATO, having some kind of arrangement with NATO, of Russia having some kind of alignment with the European Union. And that was very much what was in the air in Moscow in those heady days, even though Moscow itself, as you will remember, was a bit like the Wild West, but fun, uh, nonetheless. (laughs) We were young men. (laughs) We were young men. But the problem with those heady days is that was when there was something approaching democracy in Russia, And what we've seen under Putin is the erosion of democracy. We've seen the oppression of human rights. And we've seen Russia become a very different state. 
And then it becomes very difficult to maintain normal trading relations. And again, you've mentioned you know, the BP deal with Rosneft. I mean, that was struck at a time when there was enormous enthusiasm for binding Russia into the Western economic system. The same goes for Germany's energy deals with Russia. And I think Angela Merkel's argument was you know, if you bind Russia very closely mm. to our business structures, our economic structures, then the room for misbehavior becomes far smaller. But that hasn't happened. And so we do find it. And you're the business journalist and the expert in this. But you know, one of the questions Putin will be asking, and there's no doubt factored into his recent conduct, is just how badly he will suffer if there are these punitive sanctions. And you'll have seen our colleague Ambrose Evans-Pritchard wrote a piece this week pointing out that actually the Russian economy has become quite self-sufficient in recent years and is not that dependent on the West. And if these so-called punitive sanctions were applied, Putin could laugh them off. And I think there was a Russian diplomat in Sweden who used rather more choice language to describe why Russia didn't really care about sanctions anymore. The Russians are pretty good at circling the wagons when they need to. There's a funny story because they can't get hold of brie and French cheese. There are factories in Siberia producing something that they call brie, and it's not too bad. And You don't read it very often, but they have tremendous fiscal strength, they have huge reserves, very little public debt. What would really hurt the Russians, as we all know, is if they were excluded from SWIFT, the international banking system, which is in the power of Western powers to do that if they wanted to. But I would say that the extent of Western business interests there, they don't talk about it very often, and are so significant, and the reliance on energy from Russia, and not just energy, in a bid to try and get more leverage for future negotiations, the Kremlin's making dark noises about, oh, maybe we'll limit potassium nitrate exports from Russia, which means a lot of the Western world can't produce fertilizer, which would, of course, lead to a spike in food prices. So there is a lot of negotiation going on on both sides. I guess I wanted to ask you, Con, where do you think this will end up? We've both been fascinated throughout our lives with East-West relations, particularly with relations between the West and Russia. I've always found Russians at a personal level to be hugely admiring of the UK, our record in the Second World War, our culture, our music, and of individual British people. But where do you think this relationship is going to be in 10 years' time? Because it really is a very important relationship in global affairs. It is a very important relationship. And I thought it was very smart of our British defence representatives, Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, and the new head of the armed forces, Admiral Tony Radican, they took some quite significant gifts with them when they went to Moscow at the weekend. In particular, Admiral Tony took a bit of HMS Belfast, which wow. served in the Arctic convoys, and he gave it to the Russians to remind them you know, just of this very deep historic bond between the two And countries. their reliance on the western part of the Allies to keep Quiet. Russia in food. Yeah, I've actually been up to Mamansk. I was once invited to see the Russian Navy decommissioning its nuclear submarines. I mean, this is how warm relations <laughs> were at some point. I think if I went anywhere near Mamansk today, I'd be shot. Bundled into the back of a car anyway. <laughs> and given some, some Russian claret. <laughs> Not something that appeals. It's a very difficult call. I think Putin is determined 
to pursue this quest to rebuild something approaching a Russian empire. He is obsessed with what the Russians call their near abroad. He doesn't want to see Georgia or Kazakhstan or Belarus or Ukraine fall into the Western influence. He would like to see countries that are very much a part of the Western alliance, the Hungaries of this world, for example, even the Czech Republic. He would like to see them break away from our alliances. And so long as they are on that trajectory in Moscow, then it's very hard to see a way back. And of course, all the serious Russian opposition leaders have either been killed or are jailed. Paul Alexei Navalny is now looking at another 15-year prison term on top of the one he's already serving. So it is a very despotic regime, and it's not really one, even though we did business with Stalin, it was always a very uneasy relationship. And of course, it was a relationship that culminated in the creation of the Iron Curtain. This Russia-Ukraine conflict, of course, it does segue somewhat into British politics, doesn't it? Not just in terms of the competence of the government, if we're doing a decent job on the international stage to contain conflict without being seen to back down and appease, as you rightly say. But it also really feeds into the cost of living crisis. We've got another 30-year high in inflation as measured by the Consumer Price Index. The retail price index is 7.5%. A lot of people feel... Real-world inflation is a lot higher than the, the official numbers say, and Russia remains you know, one of the world's major energy exporters, the world's biggest wheat exporter. Ukraine is the world's third biggest corn exporter. That whole sort of funnel through Odessa and the Black Sea is a lot of the staple products that we consume from Russia, Central Asia, go through that. Let's hope that we can contain this turmoil? Because if we don't, it is going to impact us in our pocketbooks and our wallets. Well, I personally think we've taken our eye off the ball, particularly on energy policy. When we set up our National Security Council in 2010 under William Hague, when they decided who should sit on it, one of the appointees was the energy minister, because energy is regarded as a vital national resource. If that is the case, then why are we so dependent on a potentially hostile state for our energy supplies? And we have a government at the moment that is obsessed with net zero, irrespective of what that means for our other energy needs. And as you know, as you're an economist, this is one of the key factors that's fueling inflation and will continue to do so. So at the very least, I think we in Britain and also in Europe should look at revising our energy policy. I mean, the Americans did this 20 years ago, and they're now reaping the benefits. Wholesale gas prices in America are much, much lower. Ministers say, don't they, Con, here in the UK, oh, it's world markets, it's not our fault. Yeah. But there are things we could have done. Why have we got no decent gas storage in this country? Why are we hurtling towards net zero at such a rate that... Ordinary people are paying 25% of their electricity bills, much inflated now, in renewable subsidies. You're a very discreet man, but you do talk to a lot of top brass in the military and security services. It's your job, and you do it brilliantly. What do they think about this seeming overemphasis on virtue signalling at the expense of energy security? 
Well, the problem with a lot of the military at the moment is they are so obsessed with their own virtue signaling. <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, I had an email from somebody very senior in the military. And, you know, you get the message and they, they add their, their chosen pronoun at the end. You know, and you think, well, is this really the priority for the British Armed Forces at this moment? Con, you just went slightly more red than you were at the beginning of this <laughs> podcast. But, I mean, the thing is, we have been moving in the right direction in this country. We do have a joined-up strategy that was devised under the recent defence review, but we need to implement it. And in that defence review, by the way, Russia was identified very clearly by the then head of the armed forces, General Sinek Carter, as posing the most current threat to our, our well-being. So if that is the case, then Whitehall needs to address all the policy areas that are affected by that judgment. And I don't see that happening. Is Russia a bigger threat to us than China, in your considered opinion, or does it swing one way or the other over time? In the present climate, Russia is the big threat, undoubtedly. Russia's military threat, also its willingness to use non-conventional means, cyber attacks, propaganda, false news, etc. They are very adept and very active, and they're very disruptive. And they want to disrupt and, and unsettle the Western alliance. And they've been doing quite a good job on it. So in the, the immediate short term, Russia is certainly a threat. And of course, if they do go ahead with the invasion of Ukraine, as I said, you know, my security sources tell me this is still actively under consideration. So we cannot be complacent. But I think in the long term, I think the Chinese are far cleverer. I think they really do have a grown-up plan with the Belt and Road Initiative. They want to build the means in bricks and mortar to be the dominant global power. And you just have to look at the way they're acquiring ports, acquiring countries. Look at what's happened to Pakistan since we gave up on Afghanistan. The Chinese have moved straight in there. Pakistan's destiny is now very much in Beijing's hands. And this is going on all over the world. So 20 years from now, I think we really need to be worried about where China will be. And I suppose coming back to your other question about our future relationship with Russia, I think the Sino-Russian relationship is is not one that benefits Moscow. I think um, someone explained, one security official said, the Chinese see Russia as their gas station to fuel their quest for global conquest. So... That's not to work for Russia's favour, but I do think we need to keep a a close eye on what the Chinese are up to, particularly in our own country, building nuclear power stations. The 5G Huawei fiasco was a close-run thing. I was writing columns saying we should never even consider this, and very senior people in our intelligence community were saying, you know, you're overreacting. And then two years later, you know, under pressure from the Trump administration, they cancelled the whole thing. So we need to be on our guard. Was Churchill the hero of the Second World War or a racist imperialist whose actions led to the Bengal famine? Should his statue be protected or pulled down? And can we really judge the figures of the past with the attitudes of the present? Please do apply for permission to have the statue removed. My name is Stephen Edgington, and if you're enjoying this podcast, you might like History Defended, a new series from The Telegraph. 
In each episode, a leading historian defends a controversial historical figure. I play devil's advocate. There are some times in wartime when incredibly difficult decisions of life and death have to be taken. Winston Churchill, Clive of India, Bomber Harris and Oliver Cromwell. Men whose actions still influence the world we live in today. Today is victory in Europe day. Search History Defended in the same place you're listening to this. Now to our latest Planet Normal stowaway, Tory MP Tom Tugendhat. The member for Tombridge and Malling in Kent, Tom has been chairman of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee in the House of Commons since 2017. Before politics, he worked as a journalist and consultant in the Middle East, and he's also seen active service in the British Army, having served in Iraq and Afghanistan. Just as it's fantastic to have Con Cochrane aboard the rocket as we focus on relations between Russia and the West... I'm delighted to welcome Tom too, another guest with serious knowledge of the UK's armed forces and foreign affairs. I started by asking Tom Tugendhat if he really thinks we're still on the brink of armed conflict between Russia and Ukraine. The honest answer is it's impossible to know because the only person who does know is Vladimir Putin and he's sitting in the Kremlin and he's not telling us. What we can say is that all the preparations that have been made could be an elaborate bluff to get concessions out of us. But then again, preparations to get the bluff would have to be exactly the same as the preparations to begin a conflict. So we just don't know. How important is Ukraine to the Western world? Because obviously for many, there's a point of principle here, but there isn't any realistic chance that Ukraine's going to be allowed to join NATO, for instance, any time soon, is there? No, there's a very good reason for that, which is that part of its territory is occupied and NATO isn't in the habit of signing up to ongoing conflicts. So I don't think there's any real possibility of that. But the reality is this matters to all of us because what we're seeing is further risk to our gas prices, further risk to our energy prices. And I don't know about you, but frankly, petrol prices are leaving me a bit short at the end of the month now. And the gas prices that I'm seeing come through in my energy bills are really beginning to hurt. And all of that is connected to what we're seeing in Ukraine. To what extent do you think the West's response in Ukraine is basically about America's response rather than the EU's response? France and Germany seem to be involved to some extent, but it seems to many watching that Germany's views are compromised by the fact that it's now got a direct pipeline between Russia and Germany, a gas pipeline. That's Nord Stream 1. Nord Stream 2 is about to open as well. Do you think the European Union can be an effective bulwark against Russian expansionism, given those business connections? Well, the European Union has never been a successful foreign policy player. It's had various goes at it, but it's really never succeeded. And what we're seeing today is part of the evidence of that. Look, the European Union is simply not structured, never has been structured, and represents too many different interests to be structured as anything other than a sort of loose collection on foreign policy issues. You know, France's position is not the same as Germany's. And I, I like the way you talk about the West position being America's. Actually, there are many different positions, and the Americans are one. But even the Americans haven't been quite as lead actor in a Western sense as they would normally have been. What's your vision for how relations between Russia and the West 
could be. Do you think it could ever be normalized? It's a long time since the Soviet Union collapsed. You have very close business links between even the UK and Russia. If there isn't that battle, will we ever reach a situation in our lifetimes where Russia can be just another business partner, albeit a pretty substantial one? Look, I hope that's going to happen. The reality that you're describing, I'm afraid, is down to a single man and a small group of, well, I was going to call them criminals, I might as well be honest and call them exactly what they are, thieves who sit around him. Because what we've got is like a mafia gang who have taken over one of the great states of the world. So I hope very much that what we're going to see in you know the next few years is a change in the relationship, which means that exactly as you suggest, the connections between London and Moscow grow and go from strength to strength. They really should do. We have a lot in common. We have a lot that we can share. That would do wonders, not just for our energy prices, which I'd like to see come down as quickly as possible, but I hope it would do fantastically for Russia, reforming enormous amounts of their infrastructure. After all, their railway system was built by British engineers. You know, it'd be great if we could be part of rebuilding it. But it'd also be great if we could help Russia to be what it really is, which is a great European country, but also an important global power. You know, the idea that this relationship they've now got going with China is in their interest, I'm afraid, is rubbish. It's going to come unstuck. I was a foreign correspondent in Moscow in the mid and late 90s. And I remember when George Kennan, someone you'll know by reputation, America's greatest post-World War II diplomat, the architect of US Cold War foreign policy, he wrote at the time that the most fateful error of American policy in the entire post-Cold War era would be the expansion of NATO to Russia's borders What's changed since then? Why was George Kennan wrong, do you think? Well, I mean, I have to say George Kennan wrote, of course, the famous long telegram that set out US-Soviet policy in 1946 or 7, it was, something like that. And he has had an enormous influence on Soviet thinking or rather thinking towards the Soviets. But I think the thing that he missed in the 90s and indeed in the 2000s was the fact that you know, the reality is free countries have the free right to freely associate. And if you're sitting in Vilnius or, or Riga, then joining NATO isn't a sort of an optional extra. It's a fundamental action that guarantees your independence. And so I think what George Kennan was talking about is a reality that sadly couldn't be shared by the smaller neighbouring countries. It could only be shared by large countries further away. How do you think the UK government's played its hand so far in this latest escalation of tension between Russia and Ukraine. This is probably the most serious situation since the collapse of the Soviet Union. I think we can all agree on that, but it's not the first moment of tension between Russia and the West by any means since the end of the Cold War. So how do you think Boris Johnson has played his cards so far? And indeed, Liz Truss. Well, I'd say, look, first off, I think the British government's done pretty well. I think Ben Wallace has had some serious talks with his opposite number in Russia's defence ministry. I think our chief of defence staff meeting their chief of the general staff was a useful thing to do. Uh, The reality is that in Kremlin politics, the foreign ministry isn't really involved in the Ukraine dossier because it's considered internal. And Lavrov himself has been kept out of the Petersburg security clique that really makes up the party around Putin. So Lavrov isn't particularly relevant. But broadly speaking, I think, you know, the policies we've taken have been the right ones. I think making sure that 
the Ukrainians are capable of arming themselves, but not being part of their battle, you know, making sure that they're able to defend themselves and have the capability, I think has been important and the right thing to do. So I'm glad that that's what we've done. You mentioned energy prices. How big a political issue domestically do you think this rise in both household and indeed business fuel bills now is? I think it's huge. Look, I mean, this is having a real effect, not just on us because, you know, we're having to pay for the fuel or we're having to pay to heat our home, but it's also feeding through into other things. And many of us have noticed that the inflation rate on things that we're buying every day, whether it's bread or pasta or whatever, or fruit, you know, is going much higher than the government's official rate or rather the Bank of England's official rate of sort of five or 6%. It seems to me to be rising a lot steeper than that. If you're trying to feed a family of four as we are, then, you know, you find yourself looking at the shopping basket and wondering wondering what next is going to give. So you think the official inflation rate is actually an underestimate of the real experienced inflation by households, Tom? Yeah, I do. I think that's right. Because the the reality is that for many of us, the less well off you are, the more your inflation rate rises because you have less decision on what you can buy or what you can't buy. House heating is a more important part of your, inverted commas, shopping basket, if you like. So, you know, you feel it more and your inflation rate is therefore higher. And that is what I think we're seeing at the moment. Tom, your MP down in Tombridge there in Kent, it's a relatively prosperous part of the country, albeit, of course, there are struggling families everywhere. But if the MP for a relatively leafy part of the UK is concerned about the cost of living squeeze, you get the sense that in other parts of the country, it's going to be a lot worse. Well, look, I think that's a fair point. I mean, you know, but we also know that in inside Tunbridge itself, there are many people who are doing what they can to get by. And in some areas, finding that incredibly hard. In one of the wards that I'm lucky enough to represent, we have some of the greatest deprivation in southern England. And these things are cutting through. So what it must be like in the north of England, in the west of England, in places where life has traditionally been harder, you know, we need to make sure that we're taking action because that's why levelling up, it's not just about a new road or new bridge or whatever it is. It's about new opportunities and the ability to have the kind of lifestyle that you'd expect for anyone in the United Kingdom, whether they live in you know, Northern Ireland or North Yorkshire. Now, the Prime Minister's clearly very committed to the net zero agenda, but some political strategists would say that maybe he needs to ease off a little bit on that. Do you think there's something in that? Do you think it's becoming increasingly mainstream, legitimate to question the net zero agenda in the face of these rocketing fuel bills? Oh, look, I think these rocketing fuel bills have forced everybody to think hard about what we're trying to achieve. And I don't think anybody seriously challenges the idea that, you know, what we want to do is to get to a world where we're not pushing out carbon and causing climate change. I think we all want that. Do we really want to be dependent on Chinese battery technology? Do we really want to find ourselves wondering whether or not we're going to keep the lights on or the heating on at home? I think what we need to be getting to is a point where we recognise the talents that British scientists and engineers have brought out. If you look at the hydrogen economy in the UK, for example, look at places like Aberdeen, look at places like Northern Ireland, and you see the most extraordinary innovation in a source of fuel that not only is pretty plentiful. So I hope that that's where we're going towards and that some of this cost is going to be making sure that we get those through as quickly as possible. Because what we can't do is have 
the consciences of some people being paid for with the lifestyle of others. You know, we need to make sure that we bring people together. You know, levelling up for me has always been about treating the whole of the United Kingdom as one. And if effectively what we're doing is switching off the lights and the heating in one part uh, to make another bit feel better, that won't work for anyone. So why are we, in some cases, making not particularly well-off families suffer even more? Why are we making life more difficult for businesses that use lots of energy and employed lots of people to subsidise technologies that we don't even know the technologies that we're going to be using? Isn't there a headlong rush towards net zero? Isn't it time to take stock and a bit less virtue signalling, a bit more prudent management and understanding that lots of ordinary households are really suffering? You have a more direct way of putting it than me, don't you, Liv? Look, I think there's two elements here. The first is your point about businesses needing to compete is absolutely right. And when I look at the competition that I see coming from other parts of the world, and you know, people may ask why I've been so interested in China and Xinjiang and the fate of the Uyghur Muslims. Of course, on one level, there's the obvious humanitarian reason. But on another, there's a very simple practical reason. It is impossible for British businesses that are having to pay effectively a carbon tax, right, which is the green energy tax, it's impossible for them to compete with companies that not only are being powered by coal, and therefore are much dirtier, but also can very often use prison and sometimes even slave labor. So look, if we look at the manufacture of solar panels, for example, it's fantastic that we're getting more energy out of the sun and it's offsetting less carbon. That's great. But if actually all that's happening is the carbon is being burnt in China, it doesn't make the damnedest bit of difference where the carbon is burnt if the whole planet is warming. So what we need to do is to make sure that what we're doing actually is increasing competition and making sure that we don't end up subsidizing carbon emitting businesses offshore or rather overseas. So what I'd like to see actually is a form of carbon tax to make sure that what we're doing is we're not allowing companies to simply move their businesses overseas in order to get round what should be rules that apply to everyone. Tom, if I may say so, you've got a lot of admirers. You've developed a reputation for not just foreign policy expertise, but honest, plain speaking in the House of Commons as well. So let me ask you this. How do you think the Conservatives are going to do in the May local elections? And will Boris Johnson still be Prime Minister by then? So your second question, my guess is yes. I can't see immediately a change in that happening. But, you know, there's a few incidents that you guys have been talking about already in earlier episodes. You don't need me to go back over them that may change that. I don't know. Other than that, the May elections are going to be tough. But look, I think one of the things that I'm particularly conscious of is we've got to make sure that we fight hard. As MPs, we don't put any obstacles in their way that make it harder. And that's because, you know, the amount of power we need councillors to wield properly in the interests of our communities and the interests of our constituents is enormous. I don't know if you know, but Kent County Council spends about £2 billion a year. It's in charge of everything from adult social care to education. It's enormously important in the lives of the people that I represent. In fact, it's enormously important in my life in the sense that it, no, it's absolutely fundamental. You get decent councillors, you get a really transformed local area. You get bad councillors. And by the way, it does some real damage to local communities and really turns things backwards. So I think we need to fight hard in these elections. I intend to. Tom, you've had your issues with the Prime Minister, as is indeed right. You're a senior backbencher. Do you want Boris Johnson to lead the Conservatives into the next general election? The job of a select committee chair is to challenge whoever is in front of them, right? I mean, that is literally what I'm paid by Parliament and 
and the electorate to do. And I've done that as chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee with whoever is the Foreign Secretary, and I've done that as one of the members of the Liaison Committee with whoever is the Prime Minister, and I'll continue to do it. Scrutiny and challenge in democracy matters. But I also think teamwork matters. You know, we've all got to be thinking at the moment, who is going to be the best person to lead us into the next election? We can't be personal about it. It can't be a matter of personal interest. It's got to be, who do we think is the best person to win a Conservative majority at any election? At every election, we need to ask ourselves that question really hard. Because not getting a Conservative majority, not getting a Conservative Prime Minister is seriously damaging to the interests of our country. We need to make sure we get the right person, we need to get the right leader, we get the right message, and then we get the right result. Is he still a winner? Well, we're going to have some different indicators of that coming up, aren't we? I mean, that's where some of the local election stuff's going to matter. I'm not alone in getting a post bag that indicates that quite a lot of people don't think so, but, you know, a few do. So it's really hard to judge it off the basis of just my post bag. And that's why I'm listening to a lot of colleagues and I'm sure these conversations will go on for a long time yet. Tom Tugener, MP for Tombridge and Malling and Chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. Thanks a lot for joining us on Planet Normal. So there you have it, Con. Tom Tugener, MP. Lots in that interview. Do you agree with him that the British government has done a pretty good job so far during this latest escalation of Russia-Ukraine tensions? Yeah, I've been surprised, actually, particularly coming off the back of Cakegate. I thought the Johnson government was in such disarray that nobody was really paying attention to anything beyond the party confines of Downing Street. So I have actually been impressed. I think Boris Johnson himself has put some backbone into the Western alliance at a time when the Americans have been a bit dubious as to you know their backbone. And I think Tom Trudendart's right to single out Ben Wallace. I think Ben Wallace has had a good war, and I think they are making the right noises And when you're dealing with somebody like Putin, it is so important to send clear signals. You know, up with this, we will not put. And the moment you start to waver, that's when they move in. So we've had both Macron and Schultz giving conflicting signals. And it's heartening to see that Britain has actually set the tone for upholding the international-based rules order. You mentioned Defence Secretary Ben Wallace. You probably know him a lot better than most political correspondents. Dark horse for the Tory leadership, as and when there's a contest? Well, he would think so. I think a more interesting proposition for Mr Wallace is NATO. I think he's shown with his handling, quite deft handling, actually, of this Ukraine crisis over the last few weeks, that he, he really does know his stuff on defence and security. He's, he's also a former security minister and, of course, a former soldier like Tom Trudendart. So I think he's had a good war, and I think probably he, he'd be better suited to staying in that zone, a bit like George Robertson. Labour's former defence secretary, yeah. of course, ran NATO. Yeah, who famously invoked Article 5 after 9-11. So I can see Ben doing a good job there. High praise coming from you. And the other thing that really struck me in that Tom Tugner interview, obviously some good knockabout about the elections and Boris Johnson's future, but what really struck me was there you had a one-nation Conservative, somebody pretty much from the left of the Conservative Party, really raising a strong eyebrow, as you did earlier on this episode of Planet Normal, about net zero. 
Yeah, well, I think you're probably fine. I don't know because I haven't spoken to him about it, but I think you're probably fine that Tom is sitting with this growing body of Tory backbench MPs who are openly sceptical about the drive for net zero. So it's not just sort of Steve Baker, the former European no. research group. It's not the sort of culture war warriors. This is right across the Tory mainstream. I personally think this is economic suicide for this country if we don't get it right. And we know that Mr. Johnson is influenced by people like Zach Goldsmith, who are very much in the tree-hugging constituency. And uh, Boris Johnson loves riding his bicycle around, so he's pretty green on that front. But uh, he's being very green in terms of his approach to energy policy, particularly in the context of what's going on in Russia. And you follow the work closely of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. That really is part of your bread and butter as defence editor at The Telegraph. How do you think they fared under Tom Tugendhat? They're doing okay. Tom did very well after Salisbury. He only took over as chairman a bit later. But when he first came in, he was very good on Russia. And he was very good in holding the government to account for all the dirty Russian money washing around London. But there hasn't been much follow through. And he seems to have moved his focus now towards China. And I personally think there's still a lot more work to be done on Russia. Well, it's a formidable perch, isn't it, to have in the Commons to run the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. So I guess we'll see what he does next. Now on to our emails, which I know is Alison's favourite part of Planet Normal. And Alison, when you listen to this, we hope you enjoy this new blokey version for one week only of Planet Normal. This is from Michael, who emailed us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Hi, Alison and Liam. Like so many others, I've been trying unsuccessfully to make an appointment to see my GP. When I finally got to see my GP, I showed him the nasty-looking rash on my bottom, but he just ignored me and carried on pushing his trolley around Tesco. Fnar, fnar. Liam, I've yet to hear an apology for a mistake you made some weeks ago after Denise Welsh's interview. The theme tune you recited, I actually sang it, was from When the Boat Comes In and Not the Likely Lads. I can't bring you to task for economic facts as I only got an A-level, but I can when it comes to 1970s TV theme tunes. Keep up the wonderful, enlightening work. Long live Planet Normal, Michael. I admit it, Michael, I did mix up my, oh, what happened to you, whatever happened to me, with my fishy on the little dishy. I humbly... Apologise, well spotted. Well, it's my turn to read an email, and I'm sorry that Alison's not here, but this one is from Robert. Dear Alison, Liam, and all staff at Planet Normal, thank you for your podcast, which is a weekly joy. Hear, hear to that. Amongst all the talk of levelling up, I have yet to hear any discussion about the need to improve education. While education alone is not going to make the difference to those areas of the UK that are variously described as deprived or economically depressed, it is a vital foundation. Indeed, while infrastructure and transportation improvements are always touted as solutions, what is the point of improved transportation if it does not give people access to good jobs? But good jobs require skills, and most skills in our modern world require a good education. I think these are points very well made. And Robert ends with a nice comment for Planet Normal. Please keep up the good work with your podcast and your excellent and stimulating articles. Very nice. Here's David, who got in touch. I've been listening to Planet Normal since the start, said David. This is our 88th episode, believe it or not. I find the show riveting, sometimes heartbreaking, often shocking. 
In fact, I'm still suffering PTSD from those terrible but thankfully shelved Scooby impressions, Liam, but always informative and passionate. (laughs) They're not shelved, they're coming back. That passion was on display last week when Alison opened her heart about the enormous human costs of lockdown on the disquieting numbers on NHS waiting lists. Talking about the NHS, says David, in a clear-eyed way, seems almost taboo these days, but those with courage must talk about the future possibilities of this organisation without prejudice or political constraint. Could you both paint a picture for listeners of how the NHS might build for the future? Can our health service emulate or exceed the staffing, bed capacity and funding structure of the German health system? Or is it doomed to degenerate further, with thousands more preventable deaths, political buck-passing and healthcare professionals leaving the service, burned out and disillusioned? Yours with gratitude, David. Well, I completely agree with you, David. As we've often said on Planet Normal, both Alison and I feel that the media has almost shied away from a discussion about the NHS. Both of your regular co-pilots believe strongly, vehemently in free at the point of use healthcare, but we both believe that there are other ways to deliver free at the point of use healthcare than a massive monolithic state-run structure that employs over a million people. There are many, many ways to run a free at the point of use health service as other countries show, and we will continue to explore them here on Planet Normal and elsewhere in our writing. So I have an email here from Erin, Dear Liam and Alison, thank you so much for your weekly podcast. Both my wife and I enjoy the common sense approach. I really can't understand why more people don't get it. Well, (laughs) let's hope they do. But then again, I think we all know the answer has been Project Fear, a campaign engaged in by the government to scare the willies out of us all, to make us docile, compliant, and scared to act with our own free will and in a responsible manner. It's really been eye-opening to see how many intelligent people have happily surrendered their free will and believed everything the media and others have said without even considering possible alternatives. It shows how powerful the fear campaign and nudge unit has been. Surely there must be a Project Anti-Fear. Oh, that's a very good idea. Probably better called something like Project It's OK, You Can Come Out Now. The point is (laughs) we must make an effort to encourage people to be confident and safe so that the UK can finally move on to something better. Anyway, thanks again for your wonderful podcast, which I'm looking forward to again this week as I walk my dog on Thursday morning. I think listening to the podcast while walking your dog is a very, very pleasurable way to do it. And I do do think, and I'm sure Liam agrees with me, that we've had far too much Project Fear and let's have a little bit more Project Live Life as Normal. I think that's exactly right. And I think a lot of what we were talking about on Planet Normal, always informed by our brilliant listeners and their emails, is now part of the political mainstream. It is now the perceived conventional wisdom of what happened in lockdown. And let's see what happens in that public inquiry. Interesting, Con, how few people are talking about the post-pandemic public inquiry, isn't it? Well, because I think most people know that with these inquiries, I mean, if you look at all the big inquiries, the Iraq war in the Chilcot report and things like that, I mean, talk about knocking down into long grass. If we see a final report published by the end of this decade, I'll eat whatever I'm required to eat. <laughs> You're very well put together an expensive hat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is from Victoria. Dear Planet Normal, Thank you for the interview with Sir Charles Walker, an MP of the old school. To my mind, he represents duty, honesty, humility, integrity and selflessness. 
together with a loyalty to his constituents, which is sadly lacking in Parliament today, amongst an increasingly smug, self-serving, professional political class intent on self-promotion and saving their own skins at the expense of the voters who put them there. Thanks very much for your terrific podcast. Yours sincerely, Victoria. And thanks to you, Victoria. And I know Sir Charles Walker is an avid listener of Planet Normal, and I know now he's announced he's stepping down from the Commons, albeit he'll be with us until the next election. I know those words will mean a great deal to him. So thanks for writing in. And there's another mention of Sir Charles Walker here from Eddie. Hello, co-pilots. I'm not tech-savvy when it comes to the internet, so avoided it like the plague until recently. I really wish I had found you months ago. Well, I'm very glad you have found us, Eddie. Two of your interviews in particular give me hope that all is not lost with the political class in this country, Lord Frost and Sir Charles Walker. If only we had more politicians of the class of these two on both sides of the House, this country would be all the better for it. How could you not agree with Charles Walker's assessment of the last two years and the increasing anger that he felt? The one point he made that resonated with me is how the population agreed with the removal of our freedoms, restrictions and lockdowns. Now there is a price to pay. So was it worth it? I think history will look back and wonder what the hell we thought we were doing. Quite. I mean, as we said before, you know, we've had far too much project fear, too much lockdown. The other aspect of this, which is mind-blowing, is the number of people who've died because they didn't have treatment for other conditions, yep. who've been neglected. Then you've got people in care homes. I mean, I have a very elderly mother who very nearly wanted to go into a care home at the start of this. If she had have done, we wouldn't have seen her for two years. I mean, that, that is reality. Thank goodness we managed to keep her at home. So that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views, Email of the week, Con, it's your turn to award a coveted, rare as rocking horse poo, planet normal <laughs> mug. Who's going to get email of the week? Oh, you put me on the spot there. <laughs> it's, it's quite irreverent, but I quite like the email about the man and his doctor and Tesco. So just for making us laugh. <laughs> so Michael gets email of the week for that little apocryphal story, or maybe not, about getting his bum out in Tesco's to give his doctor a shock. Michael, email planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Put in the subject heading Mug Winner. And Zoe Hitch, our fabulous new Planet Normal editor, will make sure that one of those rare as hen's teeth Planet Normal mugs is winging its way to you. If you enjoy Planet Normal, do leave us a rating review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps others to find us so the Planet Normal family can grow. And of course, next time, hopefully, Alison will be back to give it extra pizzazz. Do keep emailing us, dear listeners. We rely very heavily on your emails, particularly Alison, who, of course, purloins many of them to stick in her wonderful Telegraph columns. I can say that without her quoting T.S. Eliot, as she always does at that point, because she's not here. Con, it's been absolutely fabulous having you. You're a man of huge talent, writing, analysis. It's a real pleasure for me personally to have you on the rocket and thanks again for standing in for Alison this week and I'm sure many of our listeners feel the same way and I know Alison does as well so thank you very much indeed Con Coughlin thank you for having me Liam it's been an enormous pleasure and privilege and as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet earth comes back into view thanks as ever to our producers Isabel Wajard Louisa Wells Elliot Lampitt and Zoe Hitch There's no hitches when she's around. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.